has lost her I voice. I have lost my voice a little bit, so oh, it's not no. going to be pleasant. <laughs> That'll be okay. Okay, so what do you want me to do here? Do you, do you want the whole... Do the uh, fresh out of the oven, yeah. Do the, do the, yeah, yeah. Should do I read whatever. this piece you've prepared? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> okay. This is my okay, game. Okay, we'll do it. This is my new nightmare of going blind and reading whatever this is. Uh, fresh out the oven, it's Cinema Bums. I'm Wade. And I'm Emmett. Cinema Bums is a podcast where we watch through every single movie in popular film franchises, one each week, to try and track how the storytelling changes over time. We are taking time at the beginning of the new year to talk about all the old movies we watched in the old cursed year of our Lord, 2021. And especially a slasher deep dive prompted by our fascination with the Scream series. Today we are liable to spoil the first seven Nightmare on Elm Street, the first ten Friday the 13th, Freddy vs. Jason, the first four Scream movies, Halloween Part 1 and 2, and Black Christmas. So hold on to your butts, it's a new year. But the same old fear, baby. Wade, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing very well. Emmett, how are you doing? I'm doing excellently. Thank you for, for that. <laughs> now, Emmett, I do have to ask. Uh-huh. When you say Halloween Part 2, uh-huh. are you talking about Halloween 2, the original sequel? Yes. Halloween H2O, no, the yeah, second I'm sequel. About- <laughs> Halloween 2, the reboot sequel. Or Halloween, the <laughs> second movie in the fourth timeline of the Halloween series. <laughs> no, I'm definitely talking about the original 1981 sequel. The the one that, okay, finishes okay, the, okay. that finishes the first night in 1978. That's the one that I would be referencing there. So fear not, I haven't seen any of the other ones, so I'm not even able to get into it. Uh, well, this is, as we mentioned, the second of our holiday specials and our first episode of 2022. Happy New Year, Emma. Happy New Year. How's 2022 feel, Wade? <laughs> oh, excellently. Feels just like 2021, as though <laughs> it hasn't even hit and we're recording this early. That's the feeling I get, at least. Yeah. Uh, but listen, it feels great because today we're honored to have a special guest. She's a singer, guitarist, and the most talented basketball player in the Temple Horn household. Please welcome Mariah Daisy Temple. Woo! How's it going, Mariah? I'm doing good. Thank you. Mariah got dragged into this thing because we had her on for Scream 3. And then I was like, hey, you want to watch a bunch of other really probably worse movies than that? Then come on and talk about them all at once on the podcast. And I guess you, you kind of like grudgingly agreed, right? I like Friday the 13th. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. What What is this whole thing? I mean, how did this start? And and how have you watched this insane amount of movies that I'm reading on, this, <laughs> on our notes today? I got really interested after watching the Scream series in what the the things that they are making reference to, the things they're basing their rules on, uh, basically everything that they're in conversation that came before it, I never really watched that as a kid because I'd been too scared. So I was like, oh, what if I went back and watched a lot of it? So I started mm-hmm. saying, 
let's do Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, and Halloween, knowing that those are the three like big series that that's kind of talking about. Mm-hmm. I just started watching them obsessively. I have not watched all of the Halloween movies. They will not be included in this list. But when I decided to put it on the podcast, it became important to me to talk about the crazy antics that took place um, between the Friday the 13th series and Nightmare on Elm Street to lead to a Freddy versus Jason crossover film in 2003. And so that's kind of the structure of what this episode is about. Um, We will talk briefly about some of the other movies in the genre, but mostly it's going to be the story of how we got from two completely distinct takes on the slasher genre to a wild ass Mm -hmm. crossover film uh, in the early 2000s. And is that the most recent film in either of the series or are there other canonical ones that there have since been a single remake of each i think one in 2010 and one slightly less like 2008 or 2009 for the other so like they both get mid-2000s remakes that i haven't that i haven't seen yet because they're supposedly direct remakes of the originals and i've just been i've been tracking like the arc of a series if there can be said to be one but as it reboots we'll see eventually perhaps but not right now (laughs) I'm fully saturated with it. Here's my next question. I guess you'll tell me this more as we go along. But Uh the only one of these that I have any connection with is the Halloween. Uh And as we were joking with Halloween too, there are like six different timelines of like which ones are considered canon in the Halloween series. Is that happening also with Nightmare and Friday the 13th or are they one straight story? Nightmare on Elm Street, it is pretty much one straight story. And maybe you can take a new nightmare to be kind of, it's kind of like a step outside of the series, but is like all kind of about the same thing. Friday the 13th, I don't know. Don't you think they're all just kind of in a direct line with each other? There's no hard reboot anywhere? No. Mm. They go to great lengths to do weird things to explain how, how Jason survives, but it seems to all be in a direct line. And there's no slight spoiler for Freddy versus Jason. There's nothing in it that explicitly says that Jason couldn't have come back in 2455 to be on a spaceship in Jason X. So. Oh, boy. Okay. (laughs) Okay, well, I can't wait to hear more about that. What can you give me in terms of a history of the slasher genre? Does this pop out of nowhere with Halloween? Okay, so have you seen the original Halloween? I have. And have you seen the original sequel that comes, the one that comes directly after 1981? No, I have seen a handful of the Halloween movies, but not that one. Okay, those two form like a single night. And they were both written by John Carpenter. The first one was also directed by him. That's in 1978. Um, The first one comes out and the second one in 1981. That is Mm -hmm. like kind of when it pops off, but it is not the first these movies trace their his- history way back in the American and British realm. There is this thing called like the psycho thriller, which is basically like the biggest one being Hitchcock's psycho from 1960, um, which is one mm-hmm. of the first movies to show from the killers POV, like POV shots of the killer as they're going around. It's about somebody who is um, instead of like a crime movie where somebody is killed for a more logical reason. The psycho is just like murdering out of pure malice for like specific groups, usually right. women. 
and then as this develops, there's also um, the Giallo Pictures, which is an Italian crime murder film, which usually that also usually had like men stalking women. And then it really played up like the sexuality in these movies where you see like a lot of nudity in these movies. And it's like very salacious. And oftentimes like the killer seems to be almost be like killing people like if you know that if somebody is like nude or is like having sex in one of these movies they're going to be killed off so it's like almost like the murder is punishing people in like a brutish sort of way or something like that that like is starts to come into play in those but those are often also detective movies where like there's also a cop element Mm. and you're kind of like following the killer and the cop at the same time and it will come to a showdown in the american um slashers that eventually evolve out of this it usually comes down to one female heroine in a house with a villain in some remote location and having to like defeat them by their own wit or like over like finding some inner strength that they didn't know they had. And that is like repeated across almost all of these. It's not always a girl, but it's usually is resulting in mm-hmm. the quote unquote final girl trope. Mm-hmm. So in 1974, they have a movie that is largely considered to be like the one of is like the first big slasher. Um, is Black Christmas, 1974. I just watched that today. I finished it like 15 minutes ago. And after having watched all of these and then to go back and watched like the very, like one of the very first, it is like, like the original Halloween, a kind of like slow moving, creeping dread where you know the whole time like bad things are happening to everyone, but you never see, like you always see like the aftermath of stuff, but you never see like, the thing itself until the very, very end. Oh, interesting. You know, you know what I mean? And like, even then, like it, it does that horrible thing where it like leads you all the way up to the point where something happens and then cuts away to something entirely different. And like, you know, the thing is mm. happening, but you don't know exactly what, it, like exactly what it is until you, until other characters come by later to discover it. And I mean, it does that several times in horrible ways. Um, and is truly incredible. And it has Olivia, uh, Olivia Hussey, Juliet in the Zeffirelli Juliet, I think like six years earlier as the final girl in that film. Mm-hmm. That's about a stalker killing off girls in a sorority house over winter break or the remote location. Lots of people in a confined space. A lot of those tropes show up. Then we've got Texas Chainsaw Massacre, also in 1974 by Toby Ho- Tobe Hooper. Mm-hmm. The same deal. It's like a bunch of teens are on a vacation. They're out in the middle of nowhere. They stop in like an abandoned old house and then they are killed off by a masked maniac with a chainsaw. That is another one that is like a slow burn. But then once it gets going, it's just totally crazy. Another thing with this is in 1986, a full 12 years later, same director will come back and direct a horror comedy, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which is just a complete like absurd it doesn't make any sense as the sequel to the film that you like to the other film. It is like not, you know what I mean? It like is not of a piece. But if you look at all of the other movies that come in between from all of these other series, it makes sense as like a critique of those or being like, like a mockery of those because of how hmm. unscary they are at that point. I have. So the thing that I've always heard about Texas Chainsaw, which uh-huh. I uh, haven't seen, is that there like isn't a plot to it. Is that true? Is that that's just four teenagers who just come into this house and then there's like someone there who kills them for no reason? Yes. Yeah. Okay. To say that it has no plot is, I think, like a little glib. 
there is a plot in the sense that it is about like one person trying to like that is the setup the setup is four people go to a farmhouse and somebody tries to kill them the plot is the girl who tries to who like tries to escape and following her and like the stuff that she has to do it's always awful but it gets progressively weirder and more absurd as the movie goes on too so like there's an undercurrent of weird gross humor even in the first one Hmm. so then you got halloween 1978 and 1981 i think that halloween part two is the best sequel i've ever seen it might be the only sequel that i think is like better than the original wow yeah not the lion king part two simba's pride no no there's no dishonor or disgrace in halloween part two it has some of the most incredible get hype mo- moments I've ever seen. <laughs> Let me just say, you know that thing where like, oh, you better double kill the monster? Uh-huh. Well, it gets put to crazy effect in that film. <laughs> okay, so in 1979, a little film called Alien comes out, which takes all of these movies, like rules, basically, and says, okay, but mm-hmm. what if this happened on a spaceship? Outer space is cool. Slashers are cool. It's basically a slasher in outer space. I don't know how much people like put this in the genre or not. Some people say because it's science fiction, because it's an alien with like the motive to like hunt as opposed to being a human, it is like not a slasher. There's also this element, though, in all of these like slasher characters that they are kind of inhuman and almost supernatural in their physical abilities um, but it has a lot of that same tropes of like people in a confined space being picked off one by one coming down to a final girl in Sigourney Weaver who finally overcomes by her sheer grit and guts yeah I totally think the first alien is a thriller movie it just maybe is less beloved because none of the other series really is like it quickly becomes an yeah. action mm-hmm. series and then a little bit in like Prometheus and Alien Covenant gets a little bit back to the horror stuff. Yeah. I think the first one totally is. For sure. Then Friday the 13th comes out in 1980. And obviously we're going to talk about that in all the sequels. But it is one of the mm-hmm. highest grossing horror franchises of, lo- of all time, along with Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1984, Nightmare on Elm Street comes out. In that same year... The Terminator comes out, and I had never thought of The Terminator as a slasher movie until I watched all of this stuff, and it has also a lot of the same rules. A nearly invincible villain who is serial killing young women and then eventually chases down a final girl. It has a huge amount of other interesting stuff going on and doesn't focus, like, only I think, like, the first third of the movie is about him, like, killing other random people, and the most is, like, that is the last chase, but it does have a lot of the same elements, especially of like some of the later, more absurd um, Friday the 13th. Hmm. Skipping some, obviously there's a lot of movies in this genre, but to bring it back around to what started us off on the quest to begin with, Scream comes out in 1996, emulating a lot of the rules, but also perfecting a lot of them as well. Telling you exactly what's going to happen, then still making you surprised when it does, because you think they're too aware, but they're not. Yeah. So that being said, there's some rules for the slasher genre. Uh, these are best explicated in Scream. I found also a very, very fun one on some blog somewhere. Uh, film rules 
okay.blogspot.com. Check it out. There was some cool thing about slasher film rules. The rules part three. I read all of these. I'm not going to bore you with them, but let me just say, don't, don't smoke any drugs. Don't drink any beers. Don't have any premarital sex. Don't be alone in a house. Don't walk into the woods. Don't ever take a bath. Just don't bathe, I think. And <laughs> you might be okay. Uh, but you still might not because, who knows, plenty of regular old old people of the prudish kind. Yeah, don't be too prudish either because then you'll definitely get it for being annoying. It's a whole scary world out there. The interesting thing is that like all of those slasher rules uh, are there in the first Halloween, but he's not like... I don't think he's they're purposeful in there. Like, I think those are just elements of that story, but he's not like casting moral judgments. Right. And then those things get like written into stone because that movie is so popular that they become like the tropes of the genre. Well, right. He has said in interviews before he was like, I wasn't saying it was wrong for them to be having sex, but I was just saying they would have been distracted. So they would have been easier to kill. And (laughs) It is an interesting thought that um, that later kind of becomes part of it. I mean, explicitly in the motivation of the first Friday the 13th, the fact that some of the camp counselors were having sex and like not paying attention when the young boy Jason drowned, which is the reason why his mother's killing people off. Spoiler. But wait, before we get into all of that, do you have any other old movies you'd like to talk about this year? I have a couple... But before I get into that, I want to mention on your very brief history, there is one other little section of horror that I've been really interested in and wanting to Mm. check up on. The late 60s, early 70s prestige Oscar bait horror Mm -hmm. that was coming out. Psycho is one of them because it gets all the Oscar noms. But then Mm -hmm. stuff like Rosemary's Baby Mm. and The Exorcist and Don't Look Now. Like, all of those were, like, movies with, like, big dramatic actors Mm -hmm. that were getting nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars and were, like, seen as, you know, high-quality, prestige sort of things. And that was, like, that period of horror, in America at least, Mm while some of that Jalo stuff was going on overseas. I haven't seen many of them, although I would like to. Have you seen The Omen? Uh, No. That's some good stuff, man. I think that's all in that same same time. But what did you get into in this past year? For the purpose of this holiday special, I looked back. I only watched nine movies over the whole last year that were not either released in 2021 or for the purpose of this podcast. Wow. That I was watching for the first time. I, sure. You know, I rewatched yeah. some stuff I had seen before. But in terms of new watches... I'm not going to talk about all of them. Uh, the first one I watched was Naked Lunch, which was bad. Sorry. It was Sorry bad. Sorry to say it. Uh, also watched The Truman Show, which is good. You don't need me to tell you it's good. But even as someone who doesn't, pretty hit and miss on Jim Carrey. I really liked it. Okay. But I want to talk about two uh, little couplets of films I watched. One was Uncle Buck and then Cool Runnings which is kind of a continuation of Thanksgiving 2020 when I watched uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Mm. Have either of you seen any of those three John Candy movies? Cool Runnings. Runnings. (laughs) Okay, I really like Cool Runnings. But yeah, I just watched 
the first John Candy movie I'd seen last year because it was the Thanksgiving movie and really liked it. And so I'd watched two more, Uncle Buck, which is also with John Hughes mm. and is pretty funny. Yeah, he does some pretty crazy stuff in it. He makes a gigantic pancake, like a pancake the size of the room. So I would recommend that. Cool Runnings is great. And that's less of a John Candy movie, but he is still like very funny in it. It's like an actual sports drama, a true story about a bunch of Jamaican athletes who are not eligible for the uh, running portion of the Olympics and instead start a bobsled team in the country where it doesn't snow. And it's just very funny and, and very 90s and has all these like great, charming performances. I would, I would really recommend it. I saw it when I was a kid and I really enjoyed it. Two Scorsese movies I watched for the first time this year. The first one is Goodfellas. You don't need me to tell you that Goodfellas is good, but it indeed is good. It's basically like a trailer. Like the whole movie has like the pace and energy of a trailer for a movie. Like it is insane the speed at which it moves. And there are like 300 needle drops over the course of the movie. It's like also hits hard. Like, it's crazy that it moves that oh, yeah. fast and hits that hard. Ray Liotta is so good. That's the thing that I didn't know about it before watching mm. it. Mm-hmm. Is, like, how young and charming and, like, compelling of a performance that is. Yeah. Like, it's not just sort of Pacino and De Niro and Joe Pesci doing their monster thing the whole time. No, he is so good in that. But the other Scorsese movie, which I think is now my favorite Scorsese I watched for the first time this was definitely my favorite of all the movies I watched for the first time although I I did also I should mention I watched 10 things I hate about you earlier last year for the first time and loved that but then we ended up covering it on the podcast but a movie I also loved is After Hours this is from 1985 it's set in the 80s it's set in like a very grimy sort of weird mystical New York Uh It is only 90 minutes, which is like the biggest reason why I wanted to watch it. And it's about this like single boring guy in his 30s, works as as a word processor at like a big office. It starts with him at work. He goes back to his apartment where he lives alone. He like watches the news and reads and gets bored and goes out to get coffee and sit alone and read at this coffee shop. And there he meets this like weird, mysterious woman mm-hmm. who says that her roommate sells art, mm. gives him her number and says if he ever wants the art to call her. So he gets back home. He's sort of lazing around. He can't sleep. He's interested in this girl. And he calls her and she says to come over. He comes over. He forgets his wallet. He has no way back home. And then he's at this girl's house. And then I will not spoil anything from there. But the movie is about increasingly wild things happening with increasingly scary and weird characters as he tries to get back home with like no real way to do so. And it all takes place over the course of one night. Damn. It's really great. It's very moody. It is definitely the scariest non-horror movie I've ever seen. Like it is truly terrifying at some times. Damn. Also kind of like the Wolverine in one where like every character other than the main character is a woman. And it's like about his relationship with 
like six very different women that he meets mm-hmm. over the course of the night. So anyway, I really like that. I watched it on HBO Max. I think it's still there. That's my highest recommendation from old movies I watched last year. Without further ado, let's get into it. Which of these two big series do you want to start with? I'm going to start with Friday the 13th because it came. the first one came out in 1980, slightly before the first Nightmare on Elm Street. So... Just okay. overall, Friday the 13th series, um, the first film was made for half a million dollars and made nearly 40. All of the others until wow. the 10th one were made for 5 million or less. The first was the most financially successful uh, until the crossover. Hmm. The first made like about 40 million. The rest of them are somewhere in that range. And then the the... Freddy versus Jason does something like 84, 94 million dollars, the most by a long shot in both series, interestingly. The music was by Harry Manfredini for all of them but the eighth film and for Freddy versus Jason. Fred Mullen took over to finish music on the seventh film of the series and then like did the music for all of the eighth because Manfredini was working on something else. But he's got this incredible score. Like one of the best things about this series is this creepy ass music Hmm. that is just like very pared down, but is like intended at first to like only accompany the killer. And then later on in later iterations of the movie, like because because like the audience has learned that's what it's for. Then they start like changing that up and then sometimes like tricking you to think it's like think it's safe when it's not or think the killer is there when he isn't. Is it similar to the John Carpenter Halloween score, like the synthy sort of sparse vibe, or is it? You no, know, it is. It's like that in its very sparse vibe, but it has this very interesting sound that is always played. The which is just like this creepy whisper, and then there's usually like some like low drone or something like going on too. It's very creepy. Uh, so here we go to just get into it. I'm just going to give you the brief stats and the like two word description for each of these films. Sounds good. Mariah can give you the up or down on them. Um, after, after the ones that she saw. Okay. We got Friday the 13th, 1980, uh, written by Victor Miller. It was produced and directed by Sean S. Cunningham in this film. It turns out that Pamela Voorhees, Jason Voorhees' mom, has been stalking the camp counselors at the camp where her son died like 16 years before or something. At the end of this film, in kind of a joke shot to be a final scare, a little zombie boy jumps up out of the lake and drags the final girl under. Um, But it kind of happens in a dream sequence and isn't really and was supposed to just be like the gotcha, like the last thing that happened in the sequels. They really ran with this idea. Uh, because <laughs> it so the first one is entirely like realistic it is a real human woman killing other just like regular young um camp counselors like in revenge for her son's death mm-hmm. and kind of like this psychotic revenge because these aren't people who were actually there when her son died this is many years later but she's like kind of taking it out on these kids a girl kills her at the end of that movie. The final girl kills her and is attacked by this little zombie child from out of the lake. In the second film, which takes place not very long after, 
the little zombie child has grown up into a big zombie man named Jason Voorhees, who lives in a shack and now is also on a killing spree to kill the people who killed his mom. At the end of that film, um, there's some pretty cool stuff. I won't spoil the end of that one. I think the first and second are pretty interesting. Uh, The second one is written by Ron Kurtz, directed and produced by Steve Miner. It's called Friday the 13th Part 2. Friday the 13th Part 3 is from 1983, written by Martin Kittreser and Carl Watson, directed by Steve Miner and produced by Frank Minusco Jr. In this one, um, Jason gets his famous hockey mask um, for the first time, um, which has become like an icon of the series, the hockey mask and the machete. He's basically unkillable at this point. People like hold him down, stab him, shoot him, do whatever. It doesn't matter. Uh, Mariah, you saw this one, didn't you? They even like hang him from oh, they a do. shed and swing him around and he doesn't die. Yeah. Um, did you like this one? Yeah, this one, it introduced me to the series. I would say it's a bop. Yeah. So part four, the final chapter. This is That's its title. Uh, Friday the 13th, part four, the final chapter. From 1984, written by Barney Cohen, directed by Joseph Zito, produced also by Frank Minusco Jr., in this story, a young Corey Feldman moves nearby to the lake as a kid named Tommy Jarvis. Of course, you know that Corey Feldman is not going to die, so he becomes Jason's arch nemesis. The strength of Corey Feldman in this film leads to an entire three-film arc of Tommy Jarvis being the protagonist of this series. Like, a series of films that doesn't really even have protagonists in the classical sense. But Corey M.F. Feldman... <laughs> by sheer star power makes it happen so this is the final chapter what would you say about this movie this one it was good it was a bit weird i liked what it was setting up for oh yeah all right so we'll talk about that the part five a new beginning from 1985 also just like note how close together (laughs) all these movies are (laughs) a new beginning Written by uh, Martin Kittreser, David Cohen, and Danny Steinman. Directed by Danny Steinman and produced by Timothy Silver. Um, Ryan, well, how, how would you describe this one? This is this the... That's the Asylum? insane asylum one. Okay, yeah. this is my favorite besides the last one. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this one was just really good. And they have those, those two characters, like the rednecks, who live outside and have a farm. <laughs> yeah. And it's really funny. Um, this one was like, it was really funny. So in this one, um, you believe that Jason is really and fully dead after having been like had his head cracked in by young Tommy Jarvis like 10 years before. Young Tommy Jarvis has since been sentenced to an insane asylum because he's just like kind of losing it. <laughs> this movie, it kind of leads you to believe that maybe Tommy Jarvis is going to become a killer and like kill because of the, the trauma that when he like had to kill Jason as a kid. But that's not is what's happening. It, there's like a copycat, copycat killer out on the loose. And it turns out to be this entirely other character. And it's pretty wild. It's a pretty cool thing that it's doing. But he's still like plagued by memories of Jason. This is the only one where Jason isn't the actual killer. Which is a pretty cool twist on the series. I love the nerve that they have named one of these the final chapter. Uh-huh. And yet they make another the next year and have to call it a new beginning. To make it even better, the final chapter and a new beginning are chapters one and two of the Tommy Jarvis saga. So it's like, it's a real, it's like, 
even more confusing when you take into take that into account. Because here we go, part six, Jason Lives, 1986, written by Tom McLaughlin, directed by Tom McLaughlin, um, a real visionary. He wrote and directed this all by himself. Uh, produced by Don Burns. In this film, Tommy Jarvis has now escaped from the insane asylum once more and has decided to exhume the body of Jason and destroy it once and for all when an unfortunate strike of lightning (laughs) reanimates him (laughs) as a super zombie. (laughs) Mariah, what would you say? Up, down on this one. This one was a bop for that reason. It, It was perfect. And the whole thing, like there's this cop and the cop's daughter, oh, and like yeah, there's they... a romance between him. Yeah, he's got a romance. Girl. Yeah, it was a good movie. Yeah, that one, that one was pretty fun. The romance between when the cop daughter is like driving oh, yeah, him around, yeah, like the roadblock. So Tommy Jarvis is once more triumphant, and I think sinks down to the bottom of the lake. Finally, at that one, once more where he belongs. Wait, do all of these take place in a camp? All of these so far have taken place at either at Camp Crystal Lake or at houses that people have inexplicably bought right next to Camp Crystal Lake. But it is all in Camp Crystal Lake, New Jersey so far, including including part seven. Okay. But but hold on to your hat because it's about to take a big jump. Okay. So in part seven. The New Blood, 1988, written by Manuel Fidello and Daryl Haney, directed by John Carroll Butchler, and produced by Ian Patterson. In The New Blood, a young girl with psychic powers, because that's the thing now, she killed her father with her psychic powers when she was a kid at Camp Crystal Lake. Now she has come back there with her creepy psychiatrist um, and her mom, and the creepy psychiatrist is maybe trying to sleep with both of them. She accidentally, in a fit of rage, or like trying to bring her father back from the dead, because there's two bodies in the lake, instead brings back Jason from the dead. Jason wreaks havoc, as you would imagine, and then she kills him when she brings up her real ghost daddy, and he drags him down into the water. Right, up or down on that one. This one has to be a flop. <laughs> because, I mean, they don't make sense already, but this one just, it came from nowhere. I, I liked it, but it was still a flop. How similar to Stranger Things is this? Because the, the premise sounds very Stranger Things-esque. It was very Stranger Things-esque. And, you know, like, she couldn't use her power at all, except when, like, at the very last moment. Yeah, and like the you guy know. was trying to exploit her. Uh-huh. Yeah, and the, like the guy was trying to exploit her for her power, and of course he died, but her mom died mm. too. You know, and these these movies have a very grim out outlook on the world. Really. The thing, like the dad was a horrible person too. Oh yeah, and why, her, yeah, yeah. yeah why dad, she wanted to bring him back? Yeah, because yeah. her dad was like hitting her mom. That's why yeah. she she killed him in the first place when she was a little girl. Yeah, so Ooh, I mean, good. that's yeah. fair. Yeah. Well, you know, she, her dad didn't come back to life though. He really just did that little zombie zombie thing at the end. So. Yeah. She's better off, honestly, where she's at. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Part 8, 1989. Written and directed by Rob Hedden, another auteur. Produced by Randy Chevel Dave. Friday the 13th, Part 8. Jason Takes Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> 
This is presumably the sequel to 1984's The Muppets Take Manhattan. It is indeed. But Mariah, how would you describe this? Well, they get on a boat and you think they're going to New York, but for like all but like 10 minutes of the movie, they're just on the boat and they're stuck on the boat. And it's like, it's just like kind of like a murder on the Orient Express or like a clue kind of thing. You know, you're stuck and like, oh, and there's wow. a murderer running around. Yeah. Except mm-hmm. the murder on the Orient Express is fun because you don't know who the murderer is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Presumably the murderer is Jason. <laughs> who they woke up by hitting with an anchor when he was at the bottom of the lake. Yeah. <laughs> this movie is not good <laughs> but, but it is so worth watching but this sounds like the best one yet it is it is except for one thing it's the longest by a full 12 minutes <laughs> those 12 minutes are the ones in new york and there's a part where there's a part where the <laughs> final girl does heroin and kills one of the her friends in a car accident and they're all just like well cool we gotta keep running <laughs> Oh my god. Yeah. Wow. It's wild in the eighties, man. Yeah. And that's the one where he wow. Jason comes back as like a little boy. Oh yeah, Jason is also like, like a ghost boy version. He becomes like a drowned little boy. It's mm-hmm. really creepy. And it doesn't wow. make sense. Okay. Then in nineteen ninety three, uh full four years after that, so long as there's they've gone between sequels now. Written by Jay Hughley and Dean Laurie, directed by Adam Marcus, produced again by Sean Cunningham and Debbie Hayne Cass. Well, he's been everywhere else. So Jason Goes to Hell, The Final Friday. (laughs) This film... After he took Manhattan, he had to go to the sixth borough. (laughs) This film is so good. I've never seen a film that was more 90s. This film kicks ass. Okay. They blow his ass up with a nuke in the first five minutes. And he comes back to life because a doctor eats his heart and starts killing people. There's a slug that jumps from body to body that is the real demon Jason that's only been using Jason's body. We now learn nine movies deep. There's like lots of slow-mo gunfights. And get this, Wade, at the very end of the movie, mom and dad are getting back together. It is the (laughs) ultimate 90s film. Oh, boy. Yeah. This was a bop. Yeah. I know you really loved it. So I think I might have fell asleep. Then a full nine years later, right in here is when things are going to get really interesting in our story of Freddy versus Jason, too. Because um, this is when like they start talking about doing it, but it won't come out until later. But in 2002, written by Todd Farmer, directed by James Isaac, and produced by Noel Cunningham, Sean S. Cunningham, and James Isaac, it's Jason X. This time, Jason is in space in the year 2455, having been cryogenically frozen in the early 2010s. He is awakened by a crew of scantily clad college students from the future who... Put him him on a spaceship where things go exactly the way you would expect. Mariah, I know you loved this. Yeah, this was the biggest bomb of all of them. Great movie. Highlights include 
the girl, the robot girl having Will Byers's hair. Yes. Metal face Jason is good. Oh, Jason gets a new mask. Yeah. Because he's in the future, so he has to like. He becomes. Drop the they actually, they actually credit the actor as playing two separate roles as Jason and Uber Jason. <laughs> good for him, dude. I hope he got paid double. <laughs> yeah, I hope he did. Interestingly, it was a guy named Kane Hodder for almost all of these, but then he was considered not big and scary and bulky enough to play him in the Freddy vs. Jason movie. They were really doing everybody dirty on that one. So then there was Freddy vs. Jason. That was in uh, 2003. We're going to talk about that more in a little bit here. And then a Friday the 13th 2009 remake um, written by Damian Shannon and Mark Swift, directed by Marcus Nispel, and produced by Sean S. Cunningham, Michael Bay, Andrew Form, and Brad Fuller. Good God. Okay. This is so much, <laughs> so much information. Okay, I have, I have a couple questions before uh-huh. we move on to the next one. Yeah. Okay, so first of all, I noticed that only two of these movies have the same director. It seems like there's no one really running the ship across yeah. these... Uh, except for Jason Takes Manhattan, when I assume Jason is running the ship. Yeah, Jason but is. is there, like, I mean, how coherent is the whole thing? Like, both stylistically and in terms of, like, the plot. Stylistically, it feels all very similar. Okay. All match, I think, until, like, until Jason Goes to Hell, which is a totally different kind of movie, and Jason X, which takes place on a spaceship. They all share an aesthetic, even the one that's on a boat and in and in New York. That aesthetic mm-hmm. is cheesy, low budget, lots of blood, but inventive, like inventive kills and inventive new uses of gory effects. Mm-hmm. And even Jason X is very similar in the style, like the rules, yeah. like the rules are followed very much the same. It's like the same idea. He still kills everybody. Yeah. But there's very little coherence plot wise almost always a whole new batch of characters. So the only really mm-hmm. single thing is Jason, but even his like backstory and what exactly his powers are is always being like advanced and developed in each story. So he goes from just being a weird zombie guy who came back from the lake seeking revenge to being an unstoppable lightning zombie or maybe a cursed worm boy from hell or something. Cool. Well, I, second question, I guess, is like how scary are are they actually scary? Huh. They are, but they're gross to watch. Some of the deaths do make okay. me just like kind of cringe. You know? Yeah. They are not tense in the way that Halloween is tense. They, okay. I don't think they're as good at doing that as like, and even as, as Scream is. I think Scream is a return to something like a little more serious. This is kind of over the top where it's almost comical. It does get unsettling. And, like, I would say that my dreams have been worse, but the movies have not, the movies themselves have not, like, really frightened me. Okay. My last question before we move on to the next series is I've I've been following you on Letterboxd rating these movies. Okay. Yeah. I have no other, other context for these movies, but I see, like, Emma Temple, five-star review, click on the movie, and then it says, like, average rating 1.2. 1.2 stars. So, like, what... Are these just, like, camp classics that you think are are being taken too seriously? 
Yeah, or absolutely. do you just like the style? Like when I'm giving it a review like that, I'm rating it on its own merits, kind of like for what it, for what it is. And I think they're really incredible. And I think the like the more original and weirder they are, like the first three Friday the Thirteenth, I'd say, are like too serious and too like toned down for me. Like, and I know there's they mm. are like a little scarier. But it's like the later ones with Corey Feldman, like as a weird zombie boy kicking the other one's ass. Like, that's fun. And like Jason goes to hell. That's fun. But just because it's so weird and just like the lengths they have gone to um, are just bizarre. So that's what I think is really interesting about it. I also feel like I feel like we talk about the MCU a lot being like a flagship of franchises continuing themselves. But like these mm-hmm. horror franchises that kind of tried to say that they all had that they were all together or all leading to something are really interesting prototypes for it yeah i have more questions about that later in the episode but first i want to hear all about the nightmare on elm street series which is one i believe does have an auteur behind it right it At really does yeah okay this will be quicker i promise <laughs> nightmare on elm street stats the box office goes up for each consecutive movie until the fifth movie, and the new Nightmare uh, makes the least. And Freddy versus Jason is also the top grossing of this uh, series. The original's music was by Charles Bernstein. He returned for several of them. First Nightmare on Elm Street, written and directed by Wes Craven, produced by Robert Shea. All of these are produced by Robert Shea, and uh, with the exception of Freddy versus Jason and Wes Craven's new Nightmare. In this movie, there is a nightmare being haunting teenagers' dreams, and if he kills them in their nightmares, they die in real life in similar ways, but without any of, like, no evidence in the real space. But if he slashes them, it just, like, appears on them. And he's killing people off. You learn in that movie that the reason he's doing that is these are the children of parents who killed him, like, 15 years earlier because he was a child murderer. He was a real person who was a child murderer, and then the parents burn him in a fire, but now he comes back through people's nightmares and is still killing people. It's really dark, um, but is also like kind of, it is also like kind of funny, and it's very creative, and it is super dreamy, and it does have a horrible nightmarish quality to it, like an inescapable feeling that starts Heather Langenkamp and Robert Englund playing Freddy Krueger. Um, he will go on to play him in all of the all of these films. Um, Stars Freddy as well, and he's like a funny guy, right? Like he has a lot of one liners and jokes and stuff. He does in the later ones. In the first one, he's not really having one liners, but he does talk. He is like menacing and creepy. Jason, it should be said, never speaks at all. Okay. Basically, they in the first one they figure out that by not believing in him or like not fearing him, they can she can overcome him. And that's how that one ends. Then stuff goes completely off the rails. Um, we have number two, Freddy's Revenge, 1985, written by David Chaskin, directed by Jack Shoulder, produced by Robert Shea. Um, in this one, Freddy is trying to come back after they've killed him in the first one, trying to come back by inhabiting the like the body of this young man. And so he's like doing all this different stuff, trying to take him over. In the third one, Dream Warriors, Wes Craven comes back to write, um, as well as Bruce Wagner, Chuck Russell and Frank Darabont was also directed by Chuck Russell. Um, In this one, it takes place in an asylum 
where Freddy is haunting the children's dreams and making them kill themselves in horrible ways so that the asylum assumes that it is not Freddy, but like the kids doing it. Heather Langenkamp comes back in like an awesome return um, to try and teach them how to fight Freddy in their dreams. In the fourth one, The Dream Master, 1998, written by Ryan Hegland, uh, Ken Wheat and Jim Wheat, and directed by Rennie Harland, um, produced by Robert Shea and Rachel Talele. The kids know that they're like trying to fight Freddy. They are all like trying to combine their like dream powers and fight him. Um, but they get killed off one by one. But as each one does, as each, as each one dies, the like remaining one gets like more powerful with their dream energy and finally faces them. In the fifth one, Dream Child, 1989, written by Leslie Bohem, directed by Stephen Hopkins, produced by Robert Shea and Rupert Harvey. Freddy's niece is pregnant. Baby is in like a constant dream state in utero. And so Freddie is like accessing her through her baby's dreams. And finally she goes and like faces him in the other world and like kills him in the dream world somehow. Also with the help of Freddie's nun mother. And Freddie's Dead, The Final Nightmare, 1991, written by Michael DeLuca, directed by Rachel Talele, produced by Robert Shea and Aaron Warner. This is the, the, one, the first one of these that Mariah saw. There's more kids and more of like asylum sort of things. He's accessing through his daughter. And there's, there's like this big reveal that he had a child and like that she was like secreted away and adopted because they didn't want her to know who her dad was and all this stuff. And she has to finally defeat him. Well, I hadn't seen the ones before, obviously. So it was a little bit confusing. And I, I think it's already supposed to be confusing to anyone who's watching it. Yeah. So that made it even more confusing. But it's also creepy and funny. He does have a lot of one-liners. The main appeal of these movies is the very inventive um, horror dream sequences that end in like these kind of spectacular and surrealistic kills. So the body count is far lower in these movies than it is in Friday the 13th. But the things that happen are just like way crazier. In one of these, a girl's arms break open and then turn into cockroach legs. And then she gets squished in a giant Freddy hand inside of a cockroach trap. I mean, like, that wow. is disgusting and horrible and just beyond any sort of thing that you would ever expect to see in any movie. Mm-hmm. Kafka-esque. So they're kind of like trippy. Yeah. 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 Dolly-esque. Yeah, for sure. So they're, and they to me are more like freaky and disturbing. They're not like as scary, like jump out sort of stuff, but it's just like really bizarre, creepy dream sequence sort of stuff. Hmm. Finally, the last one that we watched for this, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, 1994, written and directed by Wes Craven again, produced by Marianne Maddalena. Now, this one's really interesting because it takes place in a quote-unquote real world with Wes Craven and Heather Langenkamp and Robert England all playing themselves, who are aware of Freddy, obviously, as a character, but are being haunted by an ancient dream demon that they that Wes Craven had originally trapped in Freddy, the character, had trapped safely in the film world, or through the films of Nightmare on Elm Street, but the films had gotten so bad that the movies were no longer sufficient to trap him. And he is coming back through and killing people in the real world, specifically targeting Heather Langenkamp 
and her young son. It is wild. It is so good. It is so smart and so weird. It is not as scary as Scream, which I think is the next thing he'll do after it. It is like far more like cerebral and weird. But I do think it is good. And I do think Mm -hmm. it is like playing with a really scary idea. Just very fun to see a lot of these actors play themselves. And like you get to see Robert England play like Freddy, like the actual creepy dream guy. But you also get to see him play himself as this very warm, like kind of mentor role to Heather. And you see Heather's dad from the first Nightmare on Elm Street also like play himself and also play her dad. Some stuff. It's really cool. Yeah, I mean, it's insanely creative. Does it feel like a step up in quality from the others in terms of the movie making? Oh, oh yeah. And it's got like, it's a totally different kind of horror. It's like creepy kid horror for the most Mm. part, as opposed to the nightmare stuff. Interesting. While we're recording this, we have not seen the new Matrix movie yet, Uh but I've heard a ton of people saying that it is very new nightmare influenced. and inspired and so i just want to mention that i saw i even saw one review that called it that called the new matrix lana wachowski's new nightmare as opposed to Wes craven's new nightmare so that's cool seems to be on the cultural mind right now that's really interesting yeah i think it's good i think there's some stuff in there that reminded me of babadook Mm. which is really interesting Then we have Nightmare on Elm Street 2010. After there will be, of course, the Freddy vs. Jason 2003. And then Nightmare on Elm Street 2010 remake written by Wesley Strick, directed by Samuel Bayer, produced by Michael Bay, Andrew Form, and Brad Fuller. (laughs) The same team from the Friday the 13th remake. Uh I think I smell a Michael Bay Friday the 13th (laughs) Nightmare on Elm Street universe in the offing. We'll have to wait and see about that. I think I smell a Michael Bay tax write-off scheme with having his hand in both of these pots. Damn. Now, I'm going to give you the brief, briefest of rundowns on Freddy vs. Jason. Uh, it's a 2003 mm-hmm. uh, American slasher film directed by Ronnie Yu, written by Damian Shannon and Mark Swift, um, who... are the same ones who wrote Jason X. It had so many different writers and people on it. We're going to talk about that in just a second. It's a crossover from Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th. It retroactively establishes the two series in a shared universe and pits their respective antagonists against each other after Freddy Krueger manipulates Jason into coming back to life and attacking the residents of Springwood to facilitate his own return. Okay, so this is wild. So Jason's sitting there, he's dead in the ground, but Freddy comes to him and he's like, you're just asleep, wake up and go kill people and then make them fear me again, because that makes sense. Uh, So he goes to town, back to uh, Springwood. So Jason is going around killing people. The parents are blaming it on Freddy, but not telling the kids what's up because they've purposefully eliminated the memory of Freddy from the town so that the kids won't know what's going on. So they won't fear him, so they won't give him power. But through a long series of contrivances, eventually both uh, Freddy and Jason are back. They have a cool-ass fight in the dream world where Freddy kicks his ass. Then they have a cool-ass fight in the real world where Jason kicks Freddy's ass. It's dope. What would you say, Mariah? 
Well, this movie is crazy because you find out that they each, like, actually have a weakness. Like, Jason, who's, like, undefeatable, is actually afraid of water, which is not true in, like, any of the other movies. But he's, like, deathly afraid of it in this one. And the same goes for um, Freddy because Freddy was, like, burned alive, I guess. So he's afraid of fire. So it's, like, one's afraid of water, one's afraid of fire. It's, it's weird. Now, get this. This is just a little bit of the production history here. This is a list of people... Who worked on scripts? Cyrus Voris and uh, Ethan Reif, Louis Abernathy and Sean S. Cunningham, Brandon Braga and Ronald Moore, David Shaw uh, was given an office an offer to write the script just because he happened to walk by Deluca's office one day. David S. Goyer and James Dale Robinson also sent one. Rob Botton and Mark. Veer Hayden entered the project in the late 90s and proposed releasing the film with two different endings, one with Freddie winning and another with Jason winning, because they really wanted to have it both ways. So is there a definitive winner in the movie? Well, Jason obviously wins because he goes to space. Oh, yeah, that's true. So what happens to Freddie, though? He gets beheaded, but then the head's, the head winks. So the oh, last shot yeah. is Jason walking out of the water with Freddie's head. But then Freddy's head winks. So basically, it's like a, a tie with strong lean towards Jason. Okay. Yeah. But so basically, this movie was in development hell for forever. Then brings these series together and was worth it because it made the most out of any of the movies in the whole series. Uh, and it is like pretty good. It's pretty, it does a pretty good job on like bringing both of them together in a fun way. Uh, it has lots of sequences from of both types of horror which i think is pretty impressive to pull off and is still it comes in at like a pretty clean 98 minutes you know so pretty good i will just as one last thing i would say about this is one of the things that we i love in scream is the use of having another horror movie on in the background as your movie is going on and scream mm-hmm. uses halloween Halloween uses Night of the Living Dead. And there's often other horror movies going on in the backs of, of these films as well. That's true. Um, so I think that's a pretty interesting just little thing about these movies always being referential to their foregoers in different ways. Speaking of Scream, my question is, I remember us talking about how like Wes Craven took that job out of this like frustration and guilt over uh-huh. like the slasher genre uh-huh. and where it had ended up like specifically in its like treatment of women and its tone and stuff. Yeah. So watching all of these, did you like understand where he was coming from or do you think it's just like kind of a separate thing that he was after, you know, with scream? No, absolutely. I think, I think he's completely right. <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean, it, some of it is like pretty, is like pretty horrible. It is, like, frustrating, especially in the Friday the 13th, like, how little character development there is for a lot of the characters. In Scream, so all, all of those people feel like real people. Mm-hmm. And it's a, still a scary movie, and it still works. You know, it still has a lot of the same stuff, but it doesn't have to do things quite the same way. Okay, so I guess I want to hear from both of you mm-hmm. which of the two series you liked more, and what do you think the best of the bunch is? Friday the 13th for me. I saw a lot more of them also. I think my favorite, either, what number is it? The Asylum one? Uh, six. Six. Six or Jason X. Hmm. Or I like the Nightmare on Elm Street better. 
like I just think the the dream sequences are like much more interesting. That being said, I think they're more upsetting in some ways and mm. will like mess with your head more because if you fall asleep while watching a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, it's disturbing. Mm-hmm. If you fall asleep while watching Friday the 13th, you just kind of miss the action, you know? It's a different sort of game with that. But I would say I like the original Nightmare on Elm Street the best. And then I really love Jason Goes to Hell. It also reminds me a lot of Tremors. It's another movie that Jason Goes to Hell is like. Does this does any of this make you make you feel like you would want to watch any of these movies? Um, a little bit. <laughs> Maybe I feel like the weird stuff, like the weird Friday the Thirteenth stuff, is interesting yeah. to me, especially uh, Jason Takes Manhattan. That was the one that sounded most exciting to me. But also maybe the original Nightmare on Elm Street because I like Wes Craven a lot. And I know there also was a young Johnny Depp in that movie, I believe. There is, yeah. Who I've heard a lot about in that film. I mean, it's interesting how referential Wes Craven is in uh, Scream, not only to his own work, but also to a lot of the work over this this genre. But I mean, the performance Billy in, in Scream is like based off of Johnny Depp in that film to some degree. Like cast... Mm. It looks looks so much like him and acts so much like that character acts. I don't know. It's a creepy, weird, dark uh, rabbit hole to go down, but it's fun and interesting. Yeah. How do you feel at the end of it? I mean, I feel like I need to watch some Muppet movies to calm down. <laughs> well, anyway, we didn't talk about it, but at the end of Jason X, it keeps going because Jason ends up on Earth 2. Oh, There's yeah. a second Earth, 2455. So the movies could keep going and go. On Earth, too. I don't think I can't remake on yeah. Earth, too. What would you guys want to see in a, in a modern return to these series? Earth, too. I think there should be like a competition on who can write it and stuff. Mm. You know? mm. I don't know where there is to go with the Freddy material. It's just like so, so it's very played out. I think the same with jason as well honestly i feel like the jason you can do anything. yeah you can do anything People won't care. right i feel like there could like i want to see like jason like like find out he's a dad and like have to raise a kid while also <laughs> killing a bunch of people and like show the little like kid with the mask how to do it i think that would be a cool <laughs> way to take it but i don't think that's very likely <laughs> They kind of already did that with Freddy, so I don't want to see them try to do that again with Freddy. <laughs> it's also just would be cuter because Jason doesn't talk. So How does it work in Freddy versus Jason where one of them is talking and the other one isn't? Honestly, it works pretty well. I don't think that really okay. affects anything. I, I felt bad for Jason in the movie because he was being like kind of bullied by Freddy. Mm. And then it mentions that like in the past he was bullied as a kid because he was deformed. And they didn't talk mm-hmm. about it before, but it's really sad. I always see. I always mm-hmm. thought he was formed because he had been in the lake, not that he was Same. before yeah. he went in the lake. Yeah, yeah. Because actually, the camp counselors mm-hmm. they ignored him, but he was being bullied. Because he looked kind of like like sloth from <laughs> the Goonies. It's messed up guy. to laugh about, but <laughs> check out check out our letterboxd about this. I've rated all of them five stars, so it'll be really hard to discern which ones are actually good. <laughs> Much like this podcast. <laughs> cool. Well, what have we got coming up next, Wade? Next week, we're starting a Taika Waititi series. 
Hell yeah. Uh, voted on by listeners, our Bumtober pick. Mariah, did, was, were you gunning for Taika and Bumtober? Or? I think I was voting, like I voted on um, like Shrek. I feel like I voted on at some point. Those were the final two, I believe. I think it yeah, was Donnie okay. Shrek versus Correct. Taika. Okay, I'm kind of disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, hopefully our listeners will not be disappointed since they asked for it. <laughs> that's my hope um yeah that's starting next week with eagle versus shark Emma, anything to say as we as we start taika start a whole new year of cinema bones well i'm very excited here's to new years and new films new directors Mm. here's to a year where we will see jordan peele's nope in a mere 29 weeks okay hell yeah we are finally in the year of nope we're in the year of nope. It feels like it's been like, we've had a couple of years in nope. But <laughs> yeah, well, thanks so much for being here, Mariah. And thanks yeah, both you. of you for taking me on this journey. I feel like yeah. I've truly learned so much this episode. Thank you for sticking with it, letting us entertain this crazy thing. No, I love it. All right. Well, thank you for being here, Mariah. And thank you for listening. Stay freaky. Stay frosted. And don't open that door! Cinema Bums is a production of DKG Podcasts. It is created and produced by Wade Lawrence Holloman and me, Emmett Temple. Wade also edits and mixes the podcast. Our theme music is by Zane Holloman, who you can find on Bandcamp, and our show art is by Autumn Beckner. Our social media is managed by Laura Bennett. If you like what you hear, please tell all your friends and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, the two best ways to spread the word about our work. You can also follow us on Instagram at cinemabums or email us at cinemabumspod at gmail.com. Don't flake on us. We'll be back next week. <laughs>